Welcome to Stanford Truth Podcast. Uh, today's special guest, we have James Parker. Thanks for coming on. Great to be with you. Thank you very much for having me here. James, we'll just start off with a prayer as we always do. So just join me in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We ask the Holy Spirit to guide us that everything we say and do comes from the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. James, uh, thank you once again for coming on. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but the first time I seen you was you were doing a talk probably about five, six years ago at St. Jerome's in Punchbowl. Do you remember that talk? I do remember that talk, yes. Yes, um, uh, that was quite a memorable evening to say the least. What year was that? Do you remember? I can't remember, but it was uh, clearly. It was probably around the time I think. I think of the plebiscite when the um, when the nation was trying to make a decision on whether or okay. not two people of the same sex could actually be married. I actually call it same sex mirage because I've lived a gay lifestyle and a straight lifestyle, so I know there's a big difference between the two. But it was probably around that time. Okay, James, uh, as you've just mentioned, uh, maybe a lot of the audience don't know your background, so you said that. You were same-sex attracted, is that correct? Absolutely. What can happened? you give us a bit of background about your past? So we yeah. Can yeah, so literally, very briefly, I, I by the time I hit the age of 14, I was absolutely convinced, well, I wasn't convinced, my, my sexual attractions, having hit puberty, were very, very much totally and only towards the same sex. So here I was, a young teenage boy, fancying other teenage boys and men. I contacted uh, something called the Lesbian and Gay Helpline, uh, which was a which country? Which this, country? I was, was in the UK at the time. Okay, so I'm a 14 year old in the mid 80s, um, calling the lesbian and gay helpline, and within two minutes of my saying, "Look, I find men sexually attractive," uh, etc., they said, "Oh, you're gay, and you need to embrace this, accept this, and unless you unless you do this, you won't be able to be happy." So I took them at their word because I didn't feel I could talk to anybody in church, and my family is a Christian family. And I felt I were they were they Catholic or they were Anglican? Anglican, family. okay. I felt there was nobody I could talk to in my school. I felt there was nobody I could talk to really in my family. So I felt as though this was my only hope. So I reached out towards those to, towards that helpline. Um, so for a, a few years, I began to let that word, that word "gay," you become my identity. At seventeen, I began to come out to people in my school. Uh, I was one of the first people ever to come out in a Catholic high school. So at the time, did you, were you straight and then you became gay or? Not at all. No, I'd only, only ever, ever been attracted towards my own sex. Okay. I mean, I, I often say I was 110% sex <laughs> okay. attracted. That's how strong it was, Charlie. But then what happened is um, I came out at school and people, for the most part, said to me, oh yeah, we all knew that because I was very effeminate in my um, mannerisms. Um, by this point, there was occasions I was beginning to wear eyeliner and different things. So was there a reason for this? Like your background, your, what, yeah, your what upbringing? Ha what had happened is, is um, first of all, um, I had been literally at my birth, my mother abandoned me. And then within 10 minutes of me being born, my twin sister was born. So my mother abandoned both me and my oh, twin wow. sister. So we were two months premature, we were incubated. So think about this, we have no mum and dad around. 
the only people we have and the heartbeats that we know and the smell we know nothing else is each other. So my twin sister and I deeply, deeply bonded. Now twins do anyway, but the excess to which we bonded is we didn't bond to anybody else, just to each other. We were incubated, then we were fostered for a time, and then we were placed into an orphanage, and then we were adopted. We were seven, about six, seven months old at being adopted, and we were adopted into this lovely Christian Anglican family. However, what happened is, is, you know, those early developmental, so the early months of life are very strong in a child's development, very strong indeed of what they intuit as being right or wrong or where they connect or disconnect. The long and short of it is this is my twin sister and I, our personalities were almost ingrained as one. My parents would speak about this, such that when it came to going to school, my parents made a decision which might seem crazy today, although I do have an understanding of why they did this. But they sent me to an all-girls school where in the first year at school, there were um, a splattering of boys. And when I say that, I mean, there were three boys in my class, about 25 girls. What was the reason for that? Well, because what happened is I was the most confident of the twins and we'd never been separated. Okay. And so they felt this is a school that will take James for this first year and he can be there with his twin sister. Then as she makes friends, he will then leave at the end of the first year and he will go to the normal boys' school with his oh, older So back brothers. in those days, it was either boys' school or girls' school, really. For the most part, okay, that's yeah. what it was. Yeah. Or at least there were co-educational. Well, there were co-educational schools, but my parents made the decision that they wanted us to go to single-sex schools. So, so what happened is my first year of, of kind of growing in education, I was kind of drawn towards ballet and bunny rabbits, for want of another way of putting it. In other words, I was on a trajectory towards the feminine. But of course, my personality was also deeply immersed into my twin sister's personality. So when I was sent to the boys' school, I hated it. And in some way, I, I, I longed for and missed that connection with the feminine. And in some way, it, it, this was very inadvertently, I think, but the, the school and the teachers began to realise I got these feminine qualities and therefore they gave me all the female roles in drama. So in some way, rather than the school calling out, calling forth the little boy in me, it's as though whenever they needed some somebody to be feminine or female, they kind of put it onto me because they thought, oh, he'll do that naturally. Okay. But what you don't realise is this is, our environment very much shapes us and how we see ourselves and how we think about ourselves. So that's part of what happened to me, is that throughout my primary school years, constantly I got given female role after female role after female role. Um, then when I hit puberty, and I ended up in a co-educational school with my twin sister. And uh, in a sense, it was the reverse. We ended up going to a mostly boys school where there were 300 or so boys and it was in a Catholic school, but only about a dozen girls. But by this point, my twin sister, who's becoming buxom and blonde and haired and blue eyes and all the boys fall for my sister. This is a boarding school, an international boarding school. So all these boys are stuck in the middle of nowhere with very few girls to access, if you like. And of course, there's me, I'm, being drawn, I'm, I'm lacking a sense of affirmation in my own male identity. I've got a big chasm inside of me. I don't know what it means to be male. And I'm watching my twin sister win the affection of all these boys. I want to be my twin sister. I mm. want those boys' affection. Now, I'm 12, 13, 14. I, I, don't, I can't process this, but that's what's happening within me. So there's no wonder at the age of 14, I contact the lesbian and gay switchboard and say, I think that, you know, maybe I'm gay. I've heard this word gay and it's people who like boys. So I came out at 17. I went to university at 18. 
I was the first guy in my university. It was a Catholic college in the university, even though I was still Anglican. I was the first person to come out there and to establish uh, the queer society, really. I mean, I was the queer society. There was, oh, wow. there was no rainbow flags and special coffee machine and safe, you know, safety zone for me to go to. It was just me against the whole college. And I threw myself into the gay community in London at that time. And um, Just to stop you there, you're saying that you're same sex attracted, but at the same time you're saying that you're thinking that you're female, you're feeling... Deep down. So was deep. there anything uh, in line with, you know, today's society where they say they're transgenders or did well, you think that you were a, a, a man stuck in a female's... Sorry, a female stuck in a man's body? Or I did. That? Or, okay. Oh, Charlie, absolutely. Absolutely I did. But the, the thing is, this is... And, and this is the important thing about how we talk to children and what we present before them. I'd never heard of transsexuality or, I mean, I'd heard of transvestites, blokes who dressed up as women. And, and there were, some people were like that on comedies, you know, it ate out of hot mum was something where, you, okay. know, the, the, you know, men would play female roles in the war in drama and stuff. But, but there was no possibility or option of, of me as a boy becoming a woman. I didn't know that was even ah, a possibility. Okay. So I took it as my lot that yes, I'm very feminine. And yes, I was wearing foundation by the time I hit university and the eyeliner and everything else. But I didn't think there was a possibility of me becoming a woman. So what happened is I had to learn in some way, even the discomfort to accept the fact that I am in this male body, even though I am in some way dissociated from it. Moving on with the story, I ended up having a long-term boyfriend. And it was in the midst of that relationship that there was a guy at university, um, a Catholic guy, who, he loved the Lord, he just loved Jesus. And people knew that he was a man of prayer. He was a pretty sort of London bloke, really. And then... Um, he, Did he know that you were gay or...? Who didn't know I was gay? Oh, okay. Mate, you would have... You, okay. you'd, you just needed to look at me and hear me. I, I was louder then than I could ever be now. And, you know, and everything I wore was... It was a deliberate kind of rejection of mainstream society. Well, it's often what we see today in Mardi Gras, you know, some people go, what are they wearing? You know, what are they doing? And that was a way of almost a bit like Catherine Kim saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Because what happens is deep down within me, there was a sense of neglect. I didn't know who I was and I wanted to know who I was. I wanted to be seen. Um, and we see that a lot around the whole thing of pride, etc. It's got to be in your face. They're almost saying, look at us. We're like, sometimes we're a bit sick of looking at it. Mm. But, but actually it shows that underneath all of that, there's a real longing to be noticed and seen because there's so much neglect often in the, um, in the developmental cycle of a number of people in the gay community. So there's me. I'm in my long-term gay relationship. And this Catholic guy says to me one day, he says, do you want more love in your life, James? Simple question. Do you want more love in your life? And I said, well, yes, who doesn't? And so he said, look, he said, a, a, um, a group of us are gathering together and we're just exploring God's love. Would you like to come along? And I thought, well, I'm free on Friday night this, this week. Normally I'd be drinking or working, whatever. So I went with him. And there I was welcomed. It's an important word there. I was welcomed in my effeminacy and all my, my sort of... Um, uh, with my makeup and all these things, I was welcomed into this group of young people. And they were looking at the word of God and they were worshipping God. And there was a time they brought something out called the Blessed Sacrament, which I didn't know what that was at all. Um, but they'd have a short time. What I now know is called adoration. And, and they would do prayer things. And I thought, these are really nice people. And I felt very welcomed. They seemed very genuine, authentic people. Anyway, I, I kind of wanted a slice of what they had. And they were talking about the fact that, you know, to us, to achieve God's love, we have to give over everything to God so he can mould it in his way. In other words, that his will would be done so his kingdom could come. 
Someone said, like the Holy Spirit was sending these guys. Absolutely. So I, I then turned around and said, well, what, what have I got to do? They said, well, you've got to, you know, give to God anything that stands in the way of his love. I said, what does that look like? They said, well, repent of anything and everything that stands in his way. So I said, oh, well, Lord, will I repent of anything and everything that stands in the way of your love? Bring on the love. Who doesn't want more love? Now, I had no idea in some way that the little millimetre crack that I was giving to God, he was going to stretch that and take 10 kilometres in my life in many ways. But all that happened is that was like the crack in the dam. And I was saying, God, if you're the light of the world, shine it into my darkness. Now, I wasn't thinking that, but that was the permission I was giving to God. So in this welcome that I'd been given, suddenly I made this decision and made this prayer. Then others, and this is the second stage, is they accompanied me along that journey. And I learned what it was to be still for just a couple of minutes a day. And by week number six of learning each day just to be quiet and still, which was a miracle for me because I was very loud. By week number six, I got, um, I'd been able to still myself for eight minutes a day. And my boyfriend, who is, uh, about, who is nine years older than me, he said to me, something's different about you and I like it. Is it that Christian thing you go to on a Friday night? And I said, yeah, I think it is. Did he want to go with you? Yeah, he okay. did. He did. He said, well, can I come? Now he was a lapsed Catholic. Remember, I'm still an Anglican going to this Catholic group. So he's the lapsed Catholic. So he came along to the group and he got deeply touched by God's spirit too. So there we are, this, this sort of practicing gay couple who are now every Friday night, we're going along to this gathering where we're But welcome. did you know, did you, okay, not know, did you, well, did you know that what you were doing was wrong? Well, no. I mean, to say no, what happened is this is, we, we were both searching, but, but we came to the understanding, I mean, looking further forward, we, we couldn't see what we were doing was wrong because what we did believe is we were trying to pursue love. Mm. Now, remember, we went to that Friday night because we wanted more love. And we were with each other because we wanted to find love with somebody else. And that was the best way that we knew at that time we were going to find love. So what happened is, is the, but the more we began to come close to God, and, and I was more blessed in some way than my ex-boyfriend, Steve, partly because this guy really accompanied me well each and every day. And so I learned to go to quite a depth of prayer very quickly. It was, I only saw my boyfriend perhaps um, Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So three and a half days of the week, he didn't have somebody accompanying him. I wasn't really with him much. But I had somebody seven days a week. And so what happened is my prayer life developed more and more and more. I'd also been exposed to the gay community for a couple of years. He'd been exposed to the gay community at this point for about 12 years. So in some way, he'd been layered in the thinking, the mentality and the activity of the gay community. Even though I'd been layered in some way with, with an understanding of that community and the mindset of that community, nevertheless, I'd only been in it for a shorter time than him. So what happened is I came to a place pretty swiftly in a number of months where I realized I began to become uh, um, uncomfortable with what was going on in the bedroom. And I just said one day, um, I want to wear pajamas. And he looked at me like, are you mad? <laughs> but what, and I'd say that very deliberately because what happened is I made a step where I said, hang on, my body doesn't feel right. In it's what like I'm your doing. eyes were starting to open That's to the exactly truth. That's exactly what it was. It was like I'd been glad wrapped like crazy and somebody was taking the glad wrap out away from my eyes. I was beginning to see more clearly for want of another way of putting it. So I, and, and once I'd made that decision, really, I became really, really uncomfortable. And I began to see that my boyfriend was trying to find in me 
a sense of affirmation of himself as a man. And I was trying to find the same thing in him. Mm. And neither of us could really give it to each other, which totally explains why when a so-called gay man finds another gay man he gets on with, they quickly and rapidly become involved with each other and, you know, they become each other's everything. But then they also quickly, rapidly, quickly and rapidly end up getting off with other people. You know, the idea of, you know, chastity in a gay relationship is just, it's just a joke, you know. Mm. And, and all of the research shows that to be true. Um, anyway, the bottom line is this, is I rapidly then came to a point where I knew as I was listening to the gospel and letting God's word, in a sense, do its own divine surgery on me like a double-edged sword, I knew that I couldn't have a foot in two camps. And God's word was starting to challenge me. And I was beginning to see that my desires were objectively disordered. The objects of my desire was not ordered in the way God expected them, they should have been. And therefore, and these Isn't are strong... There a quote references... That's the catechism. The maybe. catechism, exactly. yeah. What's, what's the quote in the catechism? Oh, I can't remember exactly, but it talks about the fact that those who experience homosexual attractions, that this is basically objectively disordered. Okay. Because it doesn't fit in with natural law. Before, before we move forward, the question about your past. Sure. Did you think that you were born gay? I mean, is that... Well, oh, I hear all, that all the time. Oh, you know, I was born gay or no, you're not. Like, well, what's, clearly, what's, I mean, I said I, I, I absolutely thought I was because I'd only ever experienced same-sex attraction. And just going from that question, Charlie, from a, a wider global perspective, are we globally to believe that people are born gay? Well, back in 2019, there's a, there's a, a, a global journal called science and it comes out with some of the leading research in the world scientific research empirical research and in the 2019 august edition the results of research long-term research involving nearly half a million people that's a lot of people they researched over 490,000 people and these researchers many of whom were gay who wanted to try and find the gay gene they came back and they stated categorically there is no such thing as a gay gene. We have looked high and low in every single bit of man's makeup. It's just not there. But what they did discover is this, is that our sexual attractions are formed from our emotional response to our environment. Mm. Let me say that again. Our sexual attractions are formed from our emotional response to our environment. So if the environment is forgive the word, but titillating. And we go, oh, that's exciting. Or, oh, that's different. Or, oh, that's curious. And it gives an adrenaline rush or a dopamine rush, etc. Then that's the likely, that's the avenue down which we're likely to go. And that's what you experienced well, with your... That's right. Well, what happened for me is in many ways, first of all, the feminine side of things felt more comfortable for me. What I didn't include, and this is what happened, is after I finished my relationship with my long-term boyfriend, um, my friends were saying to me, James, you know, you your boundaries do not exist. You've been so involved in this community where there's so much alcohol and, and drug abuse and people having sex and lots of pornography and stuff. You, 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 you don't fit in easily with everybody else. In fact, some people find you quite scary. So I entered into, a thera into therapy. And this was nothing to do with changing sexuality, etc. I realized I just need to examine some aspects of myself. It was there on that therapeutic journey that we began to ask the question why I acted and thought why I did. Cognitive behavioral therapy, it's pretty common today. It's very, very popular and very effective. But it was in that therapy that I came, that in some ways, some of the repressed memories of childhood sexual abuse came back. So not only was I in some way this feminine child in, in school, 
and deeply connected with my twin sister. But what happened is there was a teacher in my school who began to groom me and then sexually abuse me. And that went on for three years. What age was that? Between the ages of eight and 11. Oh, wow. So what happened is also you got this grown man who, um, and it's very interesting in the midst of all of this because he, in some way he, he was getting his, his sexual pleasure from me. But this what this was also doing, this was an older man who was in a fatherly figure role who was actually not affirming me as a boy, but was desecrating everything about me as a boy. Did you ever report him to police or? It eventually came to the police many years later. Um, at the age of 11, I told the principal of the school, and it's very interesting even on the whole area of child sexual abuse today in the church. So this is back in the um, uh, early 80s. I went to the principal of the school and said, look, this teacher's been interfering with me. He said, how long for? I said, three years. He said, he's going to have to go. And literally within two days, the teacher was no longer at the school and he was struck off the teaching register. But Charlie, nobody ever spoke to me about that ever again. Nobody went to my parents. Nobody said anything. So you don't know if you got locked up or nothing? Well, I, all I know is this is I knew that he was, he was basically off the teaching register. Mm. Therefore, he couldn't access kids. It was only years later, we're talking 25 years later or so, and I was working on an independent review of child protection in London. And I was listening to some of the world's experts on child protection. They were saying that when, when grown men or when people abuse, when adults abuse children, it's something called recidivism happens, which means they rarely move away from this. They're constantly, they will go back and do it again and again. And suddenly I was awoken inside and thinking, oh my goodness, this guy could still be doing this. Mm. But I also ought to point out is, some years before that, I'd gone back and found him to go and deliberately forgive him. Now, I wasn't letting him off the hook. I was going back to him and saying, you need to face God with what you did. And I am here to forgive you, but you can't receive that forgiveness unless you're truly repentant. And if you're truly repentant, you will go back and face Where what did this done. forgiveness come from? Like, that's that's a hard... It, in some way, well, I tell you the forgiveness came from, from me. It was in this therapeutic journey. I realized that I was a slave in some way to the bitterness and the pain of what he'd done to me. And my therapist, a Christian man, helped me to see, he said, you have a choice. He said, nobody's asking you to in any way whatsoever minimize what happened to you. What happened was gross, it was wrong, it was criminal. But you can either go around being bitter about this and you can go around feeling powerless and feeling betrayed and all these things, or you can make a stand and you can say, I cut myself off from this. I'm gonna forgive as Christ asks me to forgive. To some extent to begin with, that was a plain, cold choice and a decision because God's word asked for it. And by this point, I'd learned that I can trust God's word more than anything. And I'd learned that by placing myself in obedience to God, God's word that I was finding freedom. So I thought, well, I'll give this a go. And if it doesn't work, well, what have I lost? Nothing. But if it does work, I might gain everything. Mm. And so I did. This is why forgiveness sometimes is tough and it is painful. But the Lord says, this is the journey to go along. Otherwise you won't find freedom. You won't have the truth to set you free. So I'd actually been back and faced this man and said, you need to go back and face the other children you'd abused. And he admitted that there'd been a number of oh, people wow. abused. But really deep, and I was willing to face these people with him. Now, my life was very busy at that stage. I'm in my late 20s. So Did it's you become in, Catholic uh, at any I stage? I became Catholic at the age of 24. So wow. when I went back to see him, I was then 27. And it was at the age of 34 that I um, realized when I was working with this independent review with um, 
a couple of law lords from the House of Parliament in the UK looking at child protection issues. So it's at that point at the age of 34 that I went to the police. And I said to the police, look, you know, this guy abused me. And um, they said, well, when was it? I said, 25 years ago. They said, sorry, mate, can't help you. I said, well, what about this letter where he admits it? They go, what? You've got evidence? I'm like, well, yeah. Because he'd written to me. He said, look, I'm sorry for my perverted actions towards you during your childhood. That was the phrase. So the police took this very seriously. I wrote a statement. And interestingly, this is what's amazing, mate, is that as soon as I finished my statement, the police said to me, your statement is identical to that of another guy your age, hundreds and hundreds of miles away in the UK, up in Scotland, near Scotland. He said he came forward two weeks before you with the same statement, but we had no evidence. So the police just put into a file. Oh, wow. So suddenly there were two of us there to give evidence. So did I go to the police? Did it make it to court? Yes, I went to the police. Yes, he went to court. Yes, there was a guilty verdict. And the man was put onto the, um, what's called the... Um, what it's called, it's sort of like sort of the, the, the list 99. It was basically, he cannot access children at all for the rest of his life. So that was our action to be able to protect other children. And you know, if there's people out there and survivors who are listening to this and they've thought, should I go ahead? Should I do this? I'd say, you know what? Um, you may need to do this for your own healing mm. and integrity. Um, but also what happened is, I also saw the fact that this was inviting this man to face the serious, serious sin that he'd gone about. And protecting maybe any potential any, well, victims in the future. Do you know, do you know the, the, I mean, before I went to the police, I went and talked to one of these senior members of this independent review of, of child protection. And I said, look, this is my story. Do I go to the police or not? And, and the guy who was talking to me, who was a specialist, he said, if you found out that another child had been abused with you having the information you have, how, do you, how would you feel? He said, I said, I'd feel terrible. He said, don't you have your answer? Mm. And again, this is not about turning around and sticking knives in anybody. I'm not into that. This is about being able to ensure that we help each other towards heaven, ultimately. That was my way of helping this guy towards heaven. If he goes and abuses more kids, he's got no opportunity not only to repent, but to face his own inner issues. And also what happens is he, did, he needed some damn strong protective boundaries putting around him so he couldn't access children. And I wrote to the judge... And said to him, I don't want you to send him to prison. I want you to put him through extensive rehabilitation. And by that point, I knew that was available. And that's what the judge did. So in a sense, in all these steps, we were, tr we were trying to look at what the gospel says and say, we, it's important that we choose to make the most loving steps that we possibly can in that direction. The question that comes to mind is a lot of people in these situations, sexual abuse or just, uh, you know, being abused by parents or... or or somebody in the past, sometimes, especially if it happens at a young age, they actually blame God. Why didn't you blame God? Well, in some way I did blame God. Okay. I mean, I mean, really, in some way I did, but, but you know, it's... Um, I mean, why were you open to God? I think I was open to God because what happened is, is in some way, even before the abuse, as a child, I'd... I'd been surrounded by this image of a benevolent God, a good a God who willed good for my soul. And so there was a sense in which this didn't make sense, but I'd already begun to taste of, you know, the fact that there was there was something good about God. And my parents continued to take me to church every Sunday, a couple of times on Sunday. And I was at a Christian school, so I was hearing the gospel every single day. And I wanted to believe that this Jesus who heals would heal me. 
Now, this is in the mind of a child, so I couldn't even process these mm. things. And so much of my own pain I did repress. Um, but this is the importance about what it is to be able to speak the gospel around our children. Because sometimes we don't know what's happening in their lives. My parents didn't know about the abuse until I was 30 years of age. Um, it had come up in therapy and then I ended up sharing with, with them. And of course, I had to go into more detail when it made court and when it, when it made the newspapers. Um, but the gospel was really, really important. But I, I'd, in some way, I just, I just hungered after God. But also, once I discovered about the abuse in the therapy, it made total sense as to why I'd ended up at the age of 14 thinking I must be, I must be gay. Because I'd been, I mean, being blunt about it, I'd been trained in what it was mm. to be aroused in the company of another man. That was my earliest arousal. That was my experience. This is why pornography is such a dangerous thing today. This is why we have to be uber careful with what we expose our children to, and particularly from a young age. And this is why, in many ways, the LGBTQ plus ideologues, not so much the whole community, but the, the leaders in that community, are desperately trying to sexualize our children and to normalize all this, what I would call deviant behavior and outlook from the youngest age possible. So that our so, kids- So this, uh, uh, we've been seeing a lot lately with this, um, uh, what is it? Uh, story time. Oh, drag queen story Drag queen hour. story yeah. time. Yeah. Like, what's that all about? Because I, I still can't wrap my head around uh, 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 a drag queen who you, you see back in the days in, in clubs, in a drug yep. scene, yep. Yep. reading a book to three to five-year-old kids. Well, let me tell you a little bit about certainly not only my own reflections, but what I visibly clear see in this, that I see very clearly in this, is let me step back one, one moment. Is at the age of, there I am at 27, going to visit my childhood abuser. Suddenly he opens the door to me. I'm taller than him. The last time I saw him, I was 11. Mm. I was shorter than him. And this older man looks into my face and goes, oh, oh, hello, come in, come in, come in, you see. And I spend an hour in his company and there I am, a man of prayer, daily prayer, and I'm looking at this guy and I'm seeing this little boy inside of him. And I came to the understanding, and this has now been verified by many clinical psychologists along who, alongside whom I work, and they say that in the case of everybody who is deeply or in some way sexually attracted towards children or takes sexualized stuff towards children, there is, in, in certainly in every paedophile, there is an abused, very small child. That's the first thing. So having met a number of drag queens in the gay clubs myself, and their places of I mean, the drag queens are involved in lots of sexual activity, lots of hardcore drugs, and some of the most really, just really crude, crude stuff. To, that's me putting it mildly. So when you get a drag queen wanting to go and read stories to little children, you've often got a little, possibly sexualized boy stuck inside this body who wants in some way to have the attention of little children for affirmation. It's really deeply perverted. And parents are taking their kids to this? Well, what happens is the parents who take their kids themselves have to have been sexualized or they've been, sorry, eroticized or sexualized in such a way that they can no longer see that which is pure. And so what happens is this is if they live from an eroticized world, they think it's all fine. So then they haven't got a problem. In some way what happens, it might numb their own conscience about the fact they've been sexualized too, or they've been raised in an environment where that looks fine. The problem becomes this, and I'm all for kids having curiosity. Kids at the age two, three, four, five, of course they're curious about anything and everything. Their minds are, are expanding and, and developing rapidly. 
But we do have to be incredibly careful about how they perceive their bodies. So twerking and this parody of, of men, men dressing as a parody of a woman, is there to deliberately try in some way or other to pervert and to confuse these children, to make them think that all this type of behavior and that the rainbow and everything to do with the rainbow flag and all this glitter and pride, etc., that this is the place they will find most joy. So this is why it's no longer about tolerance, but about celebration at taxpayers' expense. And this is why at every juncture, we need to challenge this. We need to do that. What happened for me, when I'm there wearing makeup, and and I once even entered into a beauty pageant and won it at the age of 18 against other women. That's how convincing a woman I looked. Absolutely. You know, um, I could walk like a woman and talk like a woman and act like a woman and the rest of it. But when I look back now, I realise that actually I'd got early life trauma. Even at the age of three, I was put into girls' clothes at one point by my pet, by my mom. Not because she wanted a girl on this occasion, but because she couldn't find some little boy's clothes. So she put me into the girls' clothes. But then what happens is others saw me in this and laughed at me. It's my earliest moment of shame. So in every drag queen, and as I say, I, I know a number of drag queens in the city where I live, is there is deep-rooted shame within the essence of their persona back from the earliest time. And all they're doing now is they're trying to repair that shame, just as the teacher at school who is abusing me was trying to repair his early sexualized childhood. He was trying in some way to go back and revisit it, but he wasn't revisiting it at the foot of the cross. He was trying to revisit it by consuming the life of other boys and other kids to try and make himself feel better mm. and reconnected. So it's very, very deep stuff. So you, you, You've gone from all this, you found Christ, you became Catholic. I did, I became okay. Catholic. And you then, found a partner. Well, then what happens is I went through a time of almost being asexual. And I thought, great, I've mastered chastity. What's asexual? Well, asexual means you don't like feel any... Like a plant, like a plant. So I didn't feel any sexual feelings at all for some time. And I thought, oh, this is great, I've mastered chastity. But really what God was doing was he was unraveling my teenage years, my late childhood, my early childhood. And then he was permitting me, in a sense, to go back through some of my cycles of development. So I was learning what it was to learn to be a boy in a sense, or to learn to be in a male body and to grow non-erotic friendships with other men. And I learned that. And of course, once I went through these non-erotic friendships with men, then my masculine tank, as I call it, inside of me, I felt affirmed as a man. Previously, when I was going out with my boyfriend, men were still a mystery. So we were trying to demystify men. So here I am now in my mid-late 20s, having... I'm therefore demystifying what it means to be male. Men are no longer a mystery to me. And so what happened is shock horror, more shock to me than anybody else is I began to fancy women. Mm. I began to see the curves of women. I began to see their hair and think, oh, I want to touch it. I want to smell it. You know, she's like, oh, that smells good. You know, I felt like Adam in the book of Genesis. Whoa, flesh in my flesh, bone in my bone <laughs> at last, you know. Now I, I was, I'd like, hang on a minute. I never planned this. And I was told I was born gay. And so the fact that my same-sex attraction just diminished, I thought, oh, well, so be it. But I'd never expected this heterosexual feelings, if you like, um, which I see as being the fuller development of, of, of every man and woman should be to be attracted towards the opposite sex. Natural law was basically kicking into me because I'd, I'd submitted my unredeemed life at the foot of the cross 
Jesus sent me his precious blood. He sent me his Holy Spirit. He sent me Mother Church. He sent me a Holy Father. He sent me God the Father. He sent me Mary's mother. He sent me the Eucharist to eat so that I could actually, um, I could exchange my broken, abused body with his redeemed, resurrected body in the Eucharist. And suddenly what happens is I began to be restored. My voice began to drop. My walk began to change. And I began to take my place as a man, not just among men, but among women. And therefore... I began to find women attractive. So I dated a few. I can assure you it was only one at a time. I couldn't have coped with two. <laughs> and then and then I eventually I got married and I became a dad. And so now I'm, I've got a, a, a teenage girl. You know. And your wife and your daughter know obviously about your past? Look, uh, you know, everybody knows about my past. My okay. past has been public for, for years. I, I once gave an interview on the BBC after Gordon oh, really? Brown when he was Prime Minister. And so, um, you know, my schoolmates all found out about it and anybody who was at school and everybody in my neighbourhood's like, yeah, we heard you on the radio, mate. I'm like, yeah, yeah, well, now you know everything about my life or well, certainly the main details. So my life has has, has become known and um, and there's a great freedom in that. And that's why today, you know, I do still fight for the rights of young people and encourage them to say, if you're same-sex attracted or you're gender dysphoric or you're not sure of your identity, come out, talk to people about this. The the other day you were in parliament talking about- I was, I was in parliament here in in, in Sydney talking about these new new laws that are being proposed to try and um, it's called to, to ban conversion therapy. I'm not quite sure what, that actually means. What's conversion therapy? Well, they're saying what the LGBT ideologues and lobbyists are saying is that basically that the church in particular are trying to convert people towards heterosexuality. First of all, I don't know anybody that's trying to do that. And let me tell you, my feet are really firmly on the ground in that area here in Australia. I don't know anybody. It's also a promise that you can't make to someone. You can't turn around and say, oh, we'll make you straight. Now you're gay. You know, you can't do that. Is it possible for some people to be able to move into a place of perhaps experiencing some heterosexual potential? Well, that's clearly evident because I'm meeting people all across the country who are experiencing that. But that isn't the goal. The goal is, first of all, often for many people, is holiness as Christians. But for those who go into therapy, they just want to be able to resolve some of the underlying what we call comorbidities, their anxiety, their tension, their depression. They want to deal with their suicidal ideation. And often when they come to find what the roots of that, those, these things are and they get dealt with, what happens is the fullness of the true persona begins to rise. So the laws that these LGBTQ ideologues and lobbyists and protagonists are now trying to bring to parliament they've already succeeded in queensland in the australian capital territory and in victoria now their assault is on tasmania south australia west australia and here in new south wales what's happening is this is i've been in parliament with um professors of of pediatrics with pediatric um psychiatrists and other psychiatrists and others who've detransitioned and the families of those whose kids have gone off and transitioned and we're all saying there is no medical evidence to show that this stuff is successful. But what's happened is medicine has been hijacked by a socio-political agenda from the LGBT community. Why would the LGBT community do that? Well, this takes me back to a conversation I had in the 1980s when I was 19 years of age in the London Lesbian and Gay Centre. And there were a couple of Americans there in the bar and I was there with a couple of other British people. And... To the, Ameri- the two of the Americans said, you know, we've got this agenda for society globally. And the agenda is we have to in, in infiltrate 
indoctrinate and take leadership in eight strands of society, education, entertainment, the military, religion, mm. politics, the media, um, healthcare, and the final hurdle, and the most difficult hurdle will be sport. And one of the other Britons said, why will sport be the most difficult hurdle? And the American said, well, to play sport, you've got to have a body. And the body screams male and female. And we want to get rid of all of that. This is in the 80s. And I thought, that's ridiculous. We'll never get rid of male and female. And what is happening now? This has been planned. Most people listening, maybe many people listening to this podcast may say, there was no such thing as transgenderism when I was a kid. This has been a very, very deliberate push. Why would they want transgenderism? And why are they pushing this on kids? What's the reason for it? Well, the reason is this is, if you've been sexualized when you're young and there's this, this desire to think that by being sexual with children will somehow help ease the pain of your own sexual abuse. Now, this is going on in the subconscious and the unconscious. This is not in the conscious mind. And this is what I know from working a lot with survivors of sexual abuse. So what happens is this is, we have growing cohorts of people who really want to have passed into law the fact that they can have sex with children. Because then what it will do, it's a bit like somebody who's tasted alcohol and it's numbed their pain. They want to go back and have more alcohol and there's never enough. So you've got certain groups of people now who actually want the opportunity for everything to be sexualized, which means they don't have to humble themselves before the cross and come to a place of repentance. They want to find love in their way, not in God's way. And that's why the ban on therapy and the ban on prayer is basically saying, we don't want people to get well. Why would you put a ban on something that makes no difference? They know it makes a difference and they want to stop it making a difference. They want to stop people like me from speaking. They want to stop detransitioners from getting well. They, they, they want to make sure that now they've got a hold of kids in education. They've got a hold of kids in entertainment. They've got all their rainbow flags on servos and everywhere else we go in this world, for the most part in the Western world, that the kids will only see that and that to some extent, that will mean there'll be more and more choice of people to have, to have sex with, to be sexual with, to have relationships with, etc. Let me say this to you as a gay man, it's not a lot of fun trying to find a, part, find a partner when only one and a half percent of men are same-sex attracted. That is not a lot of people to choose from. <laughs> so what happens, they want to increase their numbers. Mm. Of course they do. And they want it to be seen as normal rather than turning around as every soul needs to. Because this isn't a question about being lesbian or gay or bisexual, transgender or queer. This is about, are we willing to take our unredeemed state, who we are as a result of the fall, and to place it in humility at the foot of Jesus Christ? And to say, I am not Lord. And I am to worship the creator, not creatures and not creation. But to come back to the person of Christ and say, only you have the words of eternal life. Because ultimately, that is what we're facing today. And that's why it's really important that the church, as the church welcomed me and accompanied me on my journey and helped me to discern the decisions I needed to make, that I became integrated into Mother Church and found my place before Christ, and that that I should feel no shame about my past, that I have a duty to preach the gospel today and to speak as I'm speaking right now. And I do this because I love my brothers and sisters in the LGBTQIAA plus 2S community and whatever other letters have been added today. <laughs> I love them because it's not a question of being any of these things. It's, it's, we're all, are we redeemed? Are we submitted to Christ? Or are we acting out of a place of 
being unredeemed where we never truly know what love is. And that goes back to that original question, do you want more love in your life? So if you're listening to this podcast and you want more love in your life, I'm saying to you, turn to Jesus Christ and say, I give you everything that stands in the way of your love. I am sorry, come with your love and trust him, hold on to him. And it will be difficult at times because you know what? Climbing out of a well or a pit is difficult, but it's worth climbing out of. There is joy in abundance at the end of the, of the and journey. And God bless you, man, for coming out and sharing your testimony. And, and just like, I could just imagine people out there who are going through what you went through and don't have anyone to speak to. They know that seeing your experience and how Christ worked through you, through your life, obviously that person that, you know, brought you to that church group and didn't judge you for Not your actions. Yeah. That's the most important thing is for us not to judge, but to bring people to Christ. That's very true. But I would say this as well is, you know, what happens is he showed me mercy, 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 mercy. But but there came a point when even he had to say to me, James, and he built my trust at this point. Yeah. And, and he'd shown himself to be a seriously good friend. And then he did come to a point with a number of different things. He said, you know, you've got a choice to make. The point has come in certain areas of your life. You've got to, you've got to choose Christ. And that was around something to his sexuality. That was around the way I talked about people. That was about my approach perhaps towards pornography, which I was steeped in as a child and a teenager, etc. So what I'm saying to people is this is, yes, mercy, mercy, mercy. We need to be a church of mercy. And I think that's exactly what Pope Francis is bringing us back to. But there does come a point further down the line where we turn around and we say to people, you need, we want to help you to discern that which is true. Because if you don't take truth, you cannot be integrated into the body of Christ and reap all the benefits of, of meeting the divine lover who is Christ himself. Nobody should be denied that opportunity. So, you know, in some way you can't show enough mercy, but there's a lot of people out there who are going, oh, it's all fine, it's all great, just accept, or mm. just celebrate. And I'm saying, you, you're pushing people off a cliff edge to their deaths. Stop it. Then there's others who would build walls and say, well, they're not welcome here because they're sinners. I'm like, no, no, no. Every church is a hospital for sinners. Mm, Every true church is. And we've got to get back to the fact that actually our society as a whole and many of us have got a bit more repenting to do and a bit more understanding what mercy is. But we mustn't lose sight of the truth. 100%. Thank you so much, James. Thank you, John, for having me on. And thanks for everyone watching Stanford Truth Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and share this video. God bless you all. Keep us in your prayers.